Welcome back to another episode of the History Essay. I hope everyone has had a good week so far. So with everything going on in the country, all the political movements, all of that stuff, I I sort of got to thinking about it all. I had like a very deep philosophical moment. And I sort of thought as to why I started this podcast. And, you know, in the first episode, I spoke about how history is cyclical. You know, history tends to repeat itself. My first episode, I sort of spoke about how how similar today's society is and the parallels between today's society and the society of Spain during the Spanish Civil War. How there were parallels between the political climate of the 2020 election today here in the U.S. and these divisiveness of today and you know how how similar it was to what Spain was going to through at that time and today you know after much thought I want to talk more in depth about another seemingly interesting parallel the cultural revolution of the 1960s in the People's Republic of China and the this the it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but the woke culture slash the council culture, the stuff that's very prevalent nowadays. Um, I sort of, the more I thought about it, there's a lot of parallels between these two things going on. You know, what happened in China during the cultural revolution and what took place or what is taking place, excuse me, um, with regards to our whole political situation, our whole social justice movement, all of that. There's a lot of interesting parallels. So, you know, I'll go over what the cultural revolution is first, because I I know for a fact a lot of you don't know what that is, or some of you do, but a lot of you may not know what I am talking about. So I'll go over it first, give you a bit of context, and then we'll sort of dive into our and what I mean by ours here in the United States, our whole thing with woke culture slash cancel culture will sort of analyze the similarities between the two as well as the differences between the two and how they sometimes maybe overlap. Now, it's important to note, and the reason I'm saying this one part here is because, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why many people would like to slander the social justice movements of today and speaking about the cultural revolution i know there are a lot of right wing supporters who would like to call all of the social justice movements that are happening here in the united states they kind of want to say that it's our cultural revolution and you know they like to slander it and drag it through the ground all of these valid efforts i'm not that's not the objective of this episode i am not against any of these social justice movements i very much agree with a lot of the efforts at reform with regards to many different aspects of our society which need fixing i agree with a lot of those efforts and i support a lot of those efforts so again i just want to point out that this episode is going to be objective i'm not going to take one side and say yes all of these social justice movements are part of this american cultural revolution absolutely not i don't take that position at all. Again, I'm just going to present you with some historical facts. We're going to go into depth about 
the Cultural Revolution in the People's Republic of China and woke culture, the social justice movements, the cancel culture here in the United States. You know, we're going to answer the question that those right wing supporters like to ask a lot is, are we here in the United States of America, are we in the middle of our own cultural revolution? So we'll, we'll go into depth, into depth with regards to that. Um, I just wanted to put that, put that out there. I'm not trying to slander what's going on. I very much support what is going on. But anyways, let's dive into it. So what's the cultural revolution? For those of you who don't know, the cultural revolution was a series of socio-political movements led by or fueled, more or less, by Mao Zedong, the head of the Communist Party in China at the time. He's also the one who was very much the symbol of revolution in China. He was the face of it all. China, the way it is now, owes everything to Mao. That rhymed. That was unintentional. But, you know, Mao was an important figure at this time. So this was a sociopolitical movement. Its main feature was that it was very much led by, or not led by, but its main actors were young people, young Chinese students who were trying to, as well as actively rebelling against Communist Party officials who were deemed as enemies of the revolution, as anti-revolutionary. So it formally began the Cultural Revolution in 1966. It went on almost for a decade, and it died down as the 70s came around. Mao Zedong utilized the Cultural Revolution to purge the Chinese government, the Chinese government of these weak communists, these old-style communists that he didn't like anymore. But more importantly, not that it's not that he just he didn't like them. He also wanted to get rid of any political opponents, and there were two in specific. In particular, excuse me, that he really wanted to get rid of, and that was Li Xiaoqi, who was the head of the Communist Party after Mao stepped down and retired, air quotes, and Deng Xiaoping, an ambitious reformer who wanted to take China in a new, much more prosperous direction. So he, Mao, he used these cultural revolutions to try and get rid of people like this. Li Xiaoqi and uh, Deng Xiaoping. Mao more or less used the Cultural Revolution as a way to show everybody, mainly his opponents, that he was more than just the face or the figurehead of the Communist Party in China. It was rather a ruthless way to show that he was still in charge. Um, you know, he before all of this started, he had this PR campaign, because yes, that did happen in Communist China, PR is still important in the communist world. He had this PR campaign where he swam in a river to sort of demonstrate not only to the Chinese people, but to his opponents that no matter how old he was getting, he was still, he still had energy and he still had the vitality to lead China, to be an important political figure in China. So again, what happened afterwards, like I said, it was a ruthless show of force to show that Mao was still in charge. So how was it carried out? What did the Cultural Revolution entail? What did it bring about? Well, 
As mentioned, Chairman Mao encouraged young students to rebel against their elders, against older Communist Party officials. The goal for these young students was to ultimately replace the old revolutionaries, who in the eyes of the students and Mao no longer served a purpose. So they were outmoded. Their way of thinking was no longer welcome. It was now up to these young people who deemed themselves true revolutionaries to continue Mao's revolution. As a result, in their struggle against the Communist Party officials, the older Communist Party officials, that is, young students expanded their struggle to not only include these officials, but also to include their parents, their teachers, professors, shopkeepers, etc. Chairman Mao told these young people who were now forming these groups, which were called the Red Guards, because they were very revolutionary, ultra-revolutionary, even if you want to call it that, Mao told them, quote, it is right to rebel. Everything that they are doing, everything that they are struggling against, everything that comes as a result of their revolution, of their uprising, is right and is justified. As a result, the country was thrown into a full-blown chaotic, turmoil, whatever word you can use, it just became almost a full-blown civil war, if you will, except the civil war that featured the young versus the old. It featured the Red Guards going all over China, carrying out revolution in the name of Chairman Mao. They would walk, you know, because China is such an expansive country, Red Guards from the more sparsely populated parts of the country, they would walk from the countryside all the way to Beijing on foot to sort of preach revolution, to sort of walk in the footsteps of Mao. Because Mao had, during World War II, quick little side note, during World War II, Mao had led the communists when what is called the Long March, the communist forces at the time when they were fighting the Japanese. He had led them in the, the long march, thousands of people died, but those that remained, you know, remember that whole experience. And it's kind of interesting, you know, if you're religious, it's similar almost to, you know, a, a religious pilgrimage of sorts. That's what these Red Guards were doing. They were doing a, a, a communist pilgrimage in order to emulate their leader, Chairman Mao. So they quickly started attacking everything that compromised what Mao deemed the four olds. These Red Guards started going after old ideas, old habits, old culture, and old customs. So what does that mean? What does struggling against the four olds mean? Well, take for example street names. Anything that the Red Guards deemed to be capitalist or to be non-revolutionary, they changed the names. So, for example... If your shop was named, if your shop had a, a like, for example, was called Good Luck Shop or Prosperity, if a road was named Prosperity Lane or something, they the Red Guards would replace those names. They would tear down the signs from the shop and from the street sign as well and replace it with Revolution Shop or, you know, something along the lines of that. There could be nothing that sort of entailed or supported bourgeoisie or capitalist ideals. So even if your shop was simply named, 
eternal prosperity shop. They would get rid of that because prosperity is a bourgeoisie idea. You know, it living in communist China, especially what Mao was trying to get to them was, you know, prosperity is a capitalist idea. You know, you don't want to be prosperous in this society. Rather, everyone should be prosperous, not just one person, not just the shopkeeper. It should be everyone. So you calling your shop eternal prosperity would essentially be a problem. It would be grounds for the Red Guards to tear your sign down and then some. Museums were also ransacked. This is part of their attack on old culture. So anything that eluded or sort of not supported, but anything that sort of praised the old culture, you know, the imperial dynasties of China. China has a very rich history. Anything that did something like that, the Red Guards would completely destroy. It didn't matter what historical value it had. Again, this represented the old culture. And the old culture was bad in the Red Guards' eyes. The old culture was bad in Mao's eyes. So destroying priceless artifacts, destroying imperial remnants of the imperial dynasties, this was important to do because you needed to get rid of that old culture with regards to, you know, the revolution. Because the revolution was more important. You know, the revolutionaries, the original revolutionaries struggled against the imperial culture, struggled against the capitalist culture, all of that. And so why have it around? Why have these museums filled with, you know, the artworks of the Ming dynasty or you know, that's just an example of, but why have these artworks alluding to the time when China was an empire when, you know, China is a completely different China in the 1960s? They did the same with religious temples of any sort. So any statues of the Buddha were torn down, they were destroyed. Anything that alluded to religion was destroyed. Because again, this represented old habits, old culture, and it needed to be got rid of. They were destroyed and they were desecrated by the Red Guards. It didn't matter, again, the significance of these statues, whether they were, or these religious temples. It didn't matter if they were centuries old temples or if they were built, you know, it didn't matter the significance. Again, the Red Guards destroyed it because it represented the old culture, it represented the old habits. It needed to be got rid of. And then, of course, there's the very famous hallmark of the Cultural Revolution, and that is the struggle sessions. So it wasn't just about destroying or tearing down um, the stat religious statues or destroying um, priceless artifacts from the imperial dynasties. It wasn't just about that. These struggle sessions were really the hallmark of the Cultural Revolution. The goal was humiliation. But oftentimes, the Red Guards would become violent, and beatings and killings were not uncommon. In fact, they were very common. If a struggle session didn't end in a beating, or if it didn't end in a violent act, then it wasn't a proper struggle session. So struggle sessions would target everyone and anyone that represented what was wrong with Mao's or what went against Mao's vision. So for example, they targeted landowners, shopkeepers, teachers, professors, anyone with foreign connections, even the parents of some Red Guards 
were struggled against. You know, going over some of the sources, I came across examples of instances where one Red Guard, for example, one Red Guard had to publicly denounce her father in front of a large crowd because as a theater performer, he was deemed anti-revolutionary. His theater troupe performed old plays that dated back from the Imperial Dynasty era. And so the Red Guards deemed this anti-revolutionary. They deemed this as supporting the old culture. She stated her father had a large dunce cap, a cap with the word dunce on it, placed on his head, as well as banners with insults draped all over him. And this young woman at the time had to denounce her father in front of the Red Guards. She, in this source that I was watching, because this was a documentary, she recounts how traumatic that was, you know, because she loved her father, but obviously she didn't want to be going against the revolution. She wanted to seem like she was supporting the revolution. So she had to denounce her father. And these were very humiliating, very traumatic events. So you can only imagine what she was going through. In another instance, the grandfather of a red guard was struggled against because he was a shop owner. So we owned a little shop and this again, bad. This is bad. Anything capitalist, any one person making more money than everybody else or who owned more supply supplies of anything was deemed bad, was deemed anti-revolutionary and deserved to be struggled against. No one person should be own, should be earning that much money. That's what the revolutionary guards were thinking. So, during the struggle session, this shop owner, the grandfather of one red guard, was beaten to death by the Red Guards. The granddaughter tried defending her grandfather, and she was subsequently beaten to death as well. In the documentary, one of the friends of this now deceased Red Guard recounts how she regrets that she didn't do anything. But she also recounts how she, was, she would have been afraid to have done anything because everyone was in such a mob mentality that if she tried to defend her friend and her grandfather, she most likely would have been killed too by the Red Guards. So these are two instances of this sort of getting out of hand. You know, this is the degree of violence that the Red Guards would go to. And these are just two examples of a myriad of examples. Thousands of people were struggled against like this. Thousands died because of struggle sessions like this. Family ties were broken apart. Um, you know, it, it was difficult if your son or daughter was a red guard and you were part of the old culture, part of the old habits, part of the old, because you most likely would be, could be a target. So as I mentioned before, Li Chaoqi was the head of the government after Mao sort of retired, again, air quotes, when he stepped out of the political scene, but Li Chaoqi was despised by Chairman Mao. Mr. Chaoqi was also a victim of a struggle session at the hands of the Red Guards. This was one of the main driving forces behind this, is we need to get rid of these old officials. Li Chaoqi just happened to be an old official. So the Red Guards went after him. He was first targeted by Mao Zedong's wife, Zheng Qing, 
a woman who I feel very much deserves her own episode. She's very controversial in her own way. Um, she's a very prolific woman in all of this. But Zhang Qing was the spokesperson of Mao. She spoke for Mao. She oftentimes, you know, very much like the press secretary speaks for the president. That's what she did, although she held a lot more power. And so she gave instructions via radio to the Red Guards to struggle against moderates in the communist government. Li Chaoqi just happened to be one of them. Li Chaoqi and his family, they tried going into hiding because he knew he was a target. So he's like, well, let me try and get out of this before it gets worse. But the Red Guards managed to lure out his wife from hiding. They captured her. dressed her like a whore and repeatedly humiliated her during a struggle session. So they dressed her up in such a way to sort of represent what it is they were struggling against, what it is they despise. So they put, um, I remember seeing the pictures in the documentary, they put like a big hat on her, sunglasses, they put a scarf around her to sort of, again, you know, she was supposed to represent a whore a capitalist whore. And so they dressed her like that and they had a struggle session against her with a huge crowd of young people hurling insults at her, yelling at her, just, it, it you know, seeing the documentary, if you have seen, if you have seen this image, you, you can only, you can only guess the magnitude of this by how many people were there. It was, this was an intense struggle session because this was someone who was a prime target. Li Chaoqi was eventually captured and he was severely beaten by the Red Guards. He also too was struggled against, although in images he is, you know, his face looks like it has a cut. He has several bruises, so he was beaten. He would eventually be imprisoned and he ended up dying alone, away from his family. After, you know, all these, I think after several years of being in prison, they just imprisoned him and then they forgot. So he died alone and away from his family. Most likely, I would have to say, you know, from the trauma that he endured during all this. The amount of people at the end of the day killed by the Red Guards rose to about 400,000 people. Oftentimes, people were struggled against simply because some people didn't like them. So there was an instance where one young Red Guard struggled against a landowner. This landowner, she was a party official. You know, given that she had the hefty job of being a party official and having to report to the Communist Party, she needed to do her job and do her job well, which, in, which meant that at times she was a bit strict with the people who worked for her. And so this young Red Guard struggled against her simply because he didn't like her. You know, she was very revolutionary. She was she was a devoted communist. She was a devoted supporter of Mao Zedong. But this young Red Guard convinced everybody, well, I'm going to struggle against this woman because she mistreated me when I worked for her. 
there's several instances of this happening. If simply if you didn't like the person, you struggled against them. You know, teachers were also prime suspects of this too. Not only because they were deemed defenders of the old culture, old habits. Again, you might have a grudge against your teacher. As a young regard, this is your perfect opportunity to call them out for their anti-revolutionary behavior. But by 1967, the Cultural Revolution began to slowly disintegrate into chaos. Mao sort of released the genie from the bottle, metaphorically speaking, and he couldn't lure it back in. The Red Guards, who were never a monolithic movement, they were never a single unified group, as is stated in one of the documentaries, they started fighting against each other. So factionalism started happening. Moderate Red Guards started fighting against much more extremist Red Guards, so on and so forth. Every sort of faction you could imagine, they started fighting over each other. Even those groups that weren't accepted into the Red Guards, because Red Guards were sort of an elite group. Well, not an elite, excuse me. They were a sort of an exclusive group. There we go, that's the better word. They were sort of an exclusive group. Red Guards were, you know, part of the Communist Party. They were part of the system, if we want to claim it in a way and so this other group who weren't able to be in the red guards called themselves simply the rebels they started fighting against the red guards so these different factions they started fighting over ideology over power and even over territory sort of the way you know gangs street gangs here in the united states or in parts of the world fight for territory. They started to do the same thing all throughout China. These students, you know, whether they were Red Guards or the rebels, fought for Mao's favor. Mao ended up favoring the rebels. Even though he had initially supported the Red Guards, he liked the rebels because the rebels were just that much more revolutionary. And so what did this cause? Well, this caused vicious fighting amongst these two groups how vicious you may ask well both of these groups often stole weapons from the army army safe houses armories you name it they stole them and they would start fighting each other out in the open as i mentioned earlier it devolved into a full-blown civil war between these two groups between the rebels and the red guards Many people died. Many young people died. Many innocent people died who were caught in the crossfire. Mao eventually sobered up from the high of being in the center or being like the main theme of the Cultural Revolution. He sobered up and he soon realized that the violence he unleashed with regards to the Cultural Revolution, it was getting out of hand. So by 1968, Mao said, okay, Enough is enough. And he ordered the Red Guards and the rebels to disband. He turned on them and he unleashed the army, the People's Liberation Army, to rein them in. Because he had had enough as well. The, some of the objectives of the Cultural Revolution had been reached. Li Chaoqi was gone out of the picture. Deng Xiaoping had also been arrested, I believe, or he had been pressured to go into exile into a remote part of China. All of his 
enemies were too afraid to go against Mao, so the Cultural Revolution more or less achieved what it needed to do with regards to Mao. So they were ordered to disband. The army pretty soon, viciously and very with a hard hand, started to put them back into line. It started to arrest Red Guards, rebels, and essentially say, you're done. It's time for you to sit down. They, they benched them. Sports terminology. They benched them and said, all right, you're done. You're out of the game. So pretty soon, you know, conformity was the name of the game. These Red Guards and these rebels, you know, Mao was their world. Mao was who they obeyed. Mao was their god. And so if Mao said stop, you stop. And so this conformity started to rule people's lives, the students' lives more and more as they returned home. What Mao said, you did. And so if Mao said, stop the Cultural Revolution, you stop the Cultural Revolution. And so after about almost a decade, the Cultural Revolution stopped. I know I kind of said that by 1968, it started to fade away. It's still, again, China is a vast country. There's millions at this time millions upon millions hundreds of millions of people living in china so it's just because you say stop you snap your fingers and you say stop doesn't necessarily mean people are going to stop right away it still took a while to bring this to a pause and to let everything go back to some sort of normality so that's why it's close to a decade that all of this took place so with regards to woke culture or and or cancel culture, let me just explain really quick why I'm putting the two or I'm grouping the two together. It is my opinion, well, at least from what I've analyzed, that whenever woke culture is mentioned or it makes itself present, cancel culture is not far behind. So we're all pretty familiar, or we have heard about woke culture. It's defined as being, quote, aware of and a proponent of social justice issues and racial justice issues. So normally that's what it entails. When someone says they're woke, they are well-versed when it comes to social justice issues or anything pertaining to racial justice. For example, you know, with everything that we're that is going on with regards to police brutality and the lives lost to it, woke culture and those who participate in it seek to educate the masses on the root causes of these unfortunate events as a way to explain how systemic racism or discriminatory policies, etc., lead to these sort of things. You know, whether how how these things, how systemic racism, discriminatory policies lead to instances of police brutality, how they lead to instances of discrimination, of racism, you name it. And like I mentioned before, where there is woke culture, cancel culture is not far behind. So what is cancel culture for those of you who might be wondering? you might not be as well versed well cancel culture is the much more aggressive arm of this i don't want to say movement but this 
this whole, well, for the sake of simplicity, let's just call it a movement. It's the much more aggressive arm of this movement. Cancel culture is much more aggressive in its modus operandi. It's It doesn't hold back. Cancel culture gives the average person a sense of power. Because cancel culture... What it intends to do is it gives the average person a means of holding someone else who has committed some sort of violation or some sort of offense, whatever, any sort of thing that is deemed bad. Cancel culture gives the average person a sense of holding that person who has committed the violation accountable. When one has been targeted, for being cancelled, it is normally because they have either consciously or by some mistake violated or gone against some aspect of woke culture. So, you know, being that woke culture advocates social justice issues or racial justice issues. If you are targeted for being cancelled, it's because you either did something that supported or was or said something that was in support of racism of police brutality something along the lines of that that's what would get you canceled in effect so one good example that's very recent is the musician doja cat now we're all very familiar with her i'm not going to go in depth as to who she is or whatever if you if you've heard that song moo or if you've gone on the internet, you know who she is. You know who Doja Cat is. Recently, she was canceled by, I want to say, the internet. The collective that is the internet. She was canceled because she supposedly frequented a chat room, Tiny Chat, which has sort of gained a reputation as being a place where incels, those pe- those men who are described as involuntary celibate, who have been the um, protagonists of some deadly shootings, and white supremacists. Tiny Chat is where both of these, both of these types of people tend to congregate. She was rumored to have laughed at racially insensitive jokes. She was also accused of, you know, being ignorant of making statements which more or less went against what people are fighting for now, you know, or... It was a very murky situation. It was very hard to understand why it is this person would be canceled, given that she herself is African-American. She herself is black. So she had no reason, more or less, to even say or laugh at insensitive jokes or anything like that. You know, when you analyzed it, When you analyze the situation, it 
it was one of those things where I think the internet just reached a little bit too far or they read in between the lines and unfortunately they read something that wasn't there. But she isn't the only example of people who have been canceled. She defended herself, said that, you know, there were no white supremacists on the chat. There was another African-American individual on the chat as well in this chat room. And so she said, I don't hang around these type of people that you all think I do. So I don't know why I'm being canceled. You know, she said something along the lines of that, but she wasn't the only one. Various YouTube influencers have been canceled for various reasons. Most times it's racially insensitive comments that they have made in the past or racially insensitive videos that sort of come back to haunt them. I won't go into depth with regards to who has been canceled or not. All you have to do is just log on to YouTube, type in the word drama, and I'm pretty sure you'll find like some virtual encyclopedia of YouTube YouTube influencers who have been canceled. But one that really comes to mind is uh, PewDiePie. So he was canceled. He's been canceled numerous times, but he was canceled a few years back due to a racially and uh, a racial slur he uttered. So he was racially insensitive, essentially. He's, he uttered a racial slur on a live stream. It got out. News media outlets started to report on this. And they essentially painted this narrative of this guy, PewDiePie, as being a terrible guy. As being a racist. Which he's not. He's defended himself several times and... You know, having been a fan of this guy for quite a while, I'm a bit biased towards him because he doesn't seem, he's not the type to be racist. And he's defended himself many a times and sort of very eloquently pointed out instances where he felt the media has been wrong against him and how the media sort of exaggerated and took him out of context. But anyways, he's been canceled numerous times, and this caused him to lose some sponsors. And it even caused him to lose a deal with Disney, worth a lot of money, supposedly. But I digress. If a celebrity or well-known figure, anyone, is revealed, anyone in the public eye, is revealed to be a Trump supporter, for example, this is also grounds to be canceled. There's no solid parameters. There's no like guidelines as to what deems a person or sort of what there's, how can I put this? There's no qualifying requirements or prerequisites that you can point to and say, okay, well, if the person has fulfilled A through Z, then they deserve to be automatically canceled. There's no such thing like that. There's no formal process to it. It can take various forms. Sometimes it's passive, where people just will make comments with regards to the person being counseled and say, oh, well, this person's done. It can be hashtags, innocent stuff like that. Although other times it can be more aggressive. It can be a lot more, you know, just head-on collision aggressive sort of thing. 
this has to do more with the severity of the violation or the severity of the offense, the act that they committed. So the more harsh the offense is, the more, you know, hard hitting the canceling, the punishment is. Now, it gets to the point where some of these activists, some of these people who utilize the weapon that is cancel culture will even find out where an offender of the an offender someone like i mentioned previously those people who are deemed um, ripe for canceling they'll find out where this person works and they will even organize protests at their work site at their job so one that comes to mind is that lawyer from new york if you remember a couple years back, there was a lawyer from New York who went to a restaurant and said, you know, he threatened to deport a worker who was, I guess, making a sandwich for him or something, and he got a little frustrated. Anyways, people showed up to his um, place of work, and they organized protests, you know? Like, you can look this up on YouTube. I forget what the lawyer's name is specifically, but this is an example of, how far sometimes they may be willing, these people will be willing to take it to make sure that the person who is being canceled or being targeted because of their offense, this is how far these people will go to shame that person. So depending on the grievances, the severity of the actions will vary. The severity of the action taken by the protesters, by activists, it will vary. There's also a degree of humiliation that comes along with this. Some will use the opportunity to denote the lack of awareness to the social, social injustices in society on behalf of those who oppose the woke culture or the social justice movements. People will utilize social media to expose these people's perceived ignorance, their perceived prejudice, going so far as to disseminate propaganda about this person, you know, disseminate posts mocking the person again it can get very ugly it can go really far people on social media tend not to hold back with their comments because again it's you know you're you've got the protection of that computer screen you're never physically meeting the person you're going to cancel so it's like hey i'm not going to hold back with what i think about you and why you should be canceled they humiliate at will and the people doing the canceling, they see no wrong with this. They see no wrong with what they are doing because in their eyes, the person being canceled or singled out brought this on themselves for holding misguided, prejudiced, discriminatory, whatever, for holding these beliefs. And so in their head, whatever happens is completely justified. Whatever happens, happens because the enemy or this opposer is wrong and they should be punished no matter what the cost to the person is so now the question arises and it's been asked by those who oppose the social justice movements who oppose the protests who oppose woke culture cancel culture etc the question has been asked by these people is the united states in the middle of its own cultural revolution in my opinion, from sort of thinking about this as deeply as possible, now again, this is only my opinion, 
this is all playing out before our eyes in the present history is happening before our eyes so it's too early to say that this is the american cultural revolution but in my opinion no the united states is not in the middle of its own cultural revolution while there are a lot of similarities there are also a lot of differences so let's look at the rationale behind the cultural revolution so what was the reason behind the cultural revolution well the cultural revolution was the brainchild of a politically weakening Mao Zedong. I had made references to this previously. Mao Zedong, by the mid-1960s, had retired, air quotes. There it is again. He had retired from the political scene. He had sort of retreated from it, but he also still sort of kept up with it. And as he heard people like Li Chaoqi and Deng Xiaoping talk about reforming China, talk about this communist country establishing ties with Japan, the country who had several decades prior invaded it, establishing ties with the West, with Europe, establishing ties with these capitalist countries. Mao saw all of this as an affront to the communist revolution. He saw this as an affront on his grip on power. Remember, he's the face of the revolution. He's the one who made China communist. And so Mao wanted to maintain his grip on power by getting rid of his political opponents by way of revolution and violent struggle, aka the Cultural Revolution. So that was the whole reason all of that in China happened. That's the reason all of the chaos in China happened, because Mao wanted to maintain his grip on power. Now, if we come back here to the United States, the social justice movements happening in the United States today are happening because of valid concerns or valid reasons that the African-American community, but also the LGBT community, the Latino community, etc., have brought forward. They have brought these groups, the aforementioned groups, have brought forward legitimate and valid concerns or reasonings behind them going to the streets and protesting. So, for example, the African-American community has obviously had enough with the indiscriminate killings at the hands of police. That's why they are going to protest. They aren't protesting to politically purge someone. They're protesting because they've had enough. The Latino community, you know, immigration is a hot topic issue for the Latino community. They're out in the streets because they're tired of families being torn apart. They're out in the streets because they're tired of immigration customs and enforcement raids on their home. ICE raids. They're tired of living in the shadows so they're going to protest all of these groups have valid reasons for doing what they are doing right now there are no nefarious intentions with black lives matter with the blm there's no again there's no sort of mouse say dong like moves where blm wants to 
maintain its grip on power it sort of it wants to rip power away from certain groups you know it's not targeting moderates it's not targeting all this stuff again they have their clear goals what they're going after and they're going after them their goals that's what they're going after i want to make that clear you know the same goes with the you know abolish ice movement on behalf of the latino community there's no nefarious intentions behind that. They're just tired of these rather indiscriminate, rather harsh raids against these families whose, let's face it, whose hard work keeps this country going. As I speak right now, you know, there's devastating forest fires in the United States, and a lot of these migrant workers are still out there working in the fields. So the Latino community obviously is going to be you know, taken aback when these raids are still continuing, given all the work that these people are putting in. There's various legitimate motives behind these movements. And there are no ulterior motives or ulterior plots behind these moves. It They are completely valid. At least in my honest opinion, what the movements previously mentioned are seeking to address are grievances that derive from years of injustices, years of stuff being ignored. That's why all these people are out in the streets and are not holding back. This is in stark contrast to the Cultural Revolution, whose purpose was to keep the revolution alive, but to also keep Mao Zedong in power and to purge the Communist Party of Mao's enemies. That's the main and important difference between the two. So. Keep that in mind. When someone sort of brings up the idea of, well, America's going through its own cultural revolution, you can explain the differences between the two. The level of violence is also notable. It's a notable difference. So in the cultural revolution, 400,000 people died at the hands of the Red Guards. While there have been instances here in the United States of clashes with the authorities, vandalism, etc., and some deaths, it is in stark contrast with the Cultural Revolution. Hundreds of thousands are not dying. You know, there are indiscriminate killings. Social justice activists are not indiscriminately killing people they aren't pulling off police officers out of their own homes and parading them and putting a dunce cap on them and having struggle sessions against them now secretly some of them might want to do that but they know that if they keep the protests peaceful here in the united states that that's perhaps the best way to do it because if they go the route of the Red Guards in China, not only would they not bring about the change that they want here in the United States, it might, in fact, not only hurt the reputation, but it might do more harm than good. It might bring about a much more harsh response from those who are against the social justice movement. So they're very aware of that that's another difference that should be taken into account is the degree of violence that is used nowadays and the degree of violence used in the cultural revolution 
The Cultural Revolution makes what's going on here in the United States seem very peaceful, which it is. You know, there's there's whites. Yes, there's been vandalism. There's been some instances of people unfortunately losing their lives. But it was because, for example, in Wisconsin, in Kenosha, it was because that guy brought an assault weapon to a protest and he shot someone. He says it was in self-defense against these social justice activists, but anyway, well, again, I need to be objective and impartial. But moving on, there are similarities between the two, and I'm not ignoring that. There are similarities between the Cultural Revolution and the social justice movements happening here in the United States. Particularly, the struggles against the olds, the four olds, I would say that's one similarity to today. Because we see that nowadays. While it isn't the primary motive of the social justice movements, it is a target. It is something they are looking at. These social justice activists are looking at. So anything that represents an old way of thinking is actively challenged. Take, for example, the Confederate statues. The Confederate statues would very much be representative of the old culture, the old culture of the South. And so, just like in the, uh, the Cultural Revolution, you desecrate those statues, you tear them down, you replace them. The names of high schools, you know, there's, I'm pretty sure in the South, there's a lot of Robert E. Lee high schools. You know, there's a university whose mascot was the Rebels. There's a team in, you know, Washington, the Washington Redskins. Kind of stumbled there, but, you know, all of these names, all of these old, these remnants of the old culture of the South or these old, this old culture of being racist towards the Native Americans is targeted by activists. They want to replace it because it represents an old discriminatory way of thinking, an old culture which was very dangerous or is very dangerous and which shouldn't be celebrated. So it is actively targeted. Another example is, um, you know, off the top of my head, religion. Religious statues more specifically here in california there is a campaign or a sort of sub movement against statues of father uh junipero Serra, the very controversial uh catholic priest who in the early days of well not the early days but during the spanish colonial era here in what is today California, the United States, who evangelized the population of Native Americans here in this region of the United States of America, but whose tactics were quite harsh, whose way, whose methods were very, very, I'm not even going to beat around the bush when it comes to this. He tortured people. 
you know, there was torture at his hands, there was suffering, there was rape, there was all sorts of things on his watch that occurred. So any stat there's a lot of statues of him here. There's a lot of reference to Junipero Serra. And so the activists target these statues and they tear them down or they deface them, they vandalize them the same way that the Red Guards vandalized and defaced statues of the Buddha, statues of any other religious figure, any sort of religious temple. The same, there's, that similarity is there. The attack on the old culture happened in the Cultural Revolution in China. The attacks on the old culture, the old ways of thinking is happening now. And that has sort of alienated some people who supported these social justice social justice movements initially, who were religious, but who now see the attacks on their temples and say, hmm, maybe we should step away. That's just an observation I've made. So the similarities here are not hard to miss. Old culture, the status quo, the old status quo, was attacked by the Red Guards in China and is currently under scrutiny here in the U.S. nowadays. Whether or not this is a good thing depends on where you fall on the political spectrum. So it depends heavily on how you view Junipero Serra, how you view the Confederate statues. Most people will have a varying opinion with regards to this, although a majority of people outside of the South, at least, which is the rest of the United States, might look at confederate statues and agree that they should come down people in the south might have the opposite opinion same goes for the statues of uh, father junipero Serra, for depictions of jesus christ with fair skin you know that represents for a lot of people for a lot of groups that represents the old culture and needs to be got rid of and so they'll go after it but again it depends on where you fall on the spectrum of how religious you are, how religious you're not, it, how political you are, how political you're not. The idea or rationale behind this is then and now that the older generations, they can't be counted on anymore. They're not as revolutionary. They're not as woke. And thus it falls on the younger generations to take responsibility. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Again, it depends on your relationship with the young. Age is another important similarity between the cultural revolution and the social justice movements of today. Both initiatives in both countries, China and the United States, are spearheaded or were spearheaded by the younger generations. In both instances, it was a loss of confidence in the older generations and their devotion, the younger generation's devotion to the revolution in China and the social, or the social justice movements of today. That was sort of the determining factor. You know, the younger generations just have a better grip. That's their understanding. It was then and it is now. Both events demonstrated the inevitable inevitable eventuality that is the rise of the younger generations 
while they got out of hand and were misguided in China, in both instances, past and present, young people have made their presence known. One of the more important similarities, however, is the sense that once the Cultural Revolution in China, once the Cultural Revolution sort of started, it was soon realized that it was going to be incredibly difficult to bring it to an end. It required the help of the armed forces in China to bring it to an end. Now, coming back here to the United States, the social justice movements of today are likewise not going to conclude easily or anytime soon. There are people who want legitimate real change and they want it to happen. So they're not going to give up their struggle anytime soon. Force has been attempted to be used. We've seen it in the news dozens of times where the authorities will go out in full regalia and full gear and try to bring the protesters and the protest to an end. But it hasn't worked. It hasn't really been effective. And also, if force is used, it's a terrible image for the United States. You know, China can get away with using its armed forces against its own people because it's an authoritarian regime. But with us, it's different. We're the beacon of democracy. Some of you might disagree with that, but that's the way we look at it. You know, that's how we describe ourselves. We are the free world, essentially. And so using force to bring these protests to an end would play very badly for us. The beacon of democracy that is the United States, it can't get away with using the same tactics that China did. So it would play very badly for us on the international stage in terms of public opinion. So we have yet to see how our modern movements will end. But without a doubt, it won't be a smooth conclusion. Things will change. Lots of things will change. Those protesting today won't allow the status quo to remain in place because the status quo hasn't worked for a lot of people here in this country. They have made that very clear. Those protesting have made that very clear. The status quo hasn't been fair to a lot of people, and so they're going to continue to protest. This is history in action. So like I said, we have yet to see how this is going to effectively play out. But we'll just have to wait and see and hope for the best and hope that true change actually does happen. So covering this topic, it was very interesting to do so. I've been hearing from these sort of right-wing activists that the United States is in the middle of its own cultural revolution. You know, these doomsday people have sort of said that like, oh, here we go. This is exactly what happened in China is happening here now. But I mean, I don't agree with that statement. You know, I don't agree with their social media posts 
talking about this because there's different reasons for what happened in the past and what is taking place now in the United States. What happened in the past in China and what's taking place now in the United States. And that's often overlooked or ignored when making the comparisons between the cultural revolution and the social justice movements. In my opinion, we here in the United States are going through a sort of cultural change that is much needed. I do agree, however, that the cancel culture and the humiliation, the shame, all of that sort of stuff of those with opposing ideas or opinions, all of that is a bit dangerous and a slippery slope even. But again, in our modern time, there are valid reasons behind the outreach. You know, whether if whether it's someone who says a racial slur, you know, and the person is canceled, well, there's some validity to that, if you think about it. The validity is, you know, you, we can't be using that old language anymore because it's discriminatory against a group of people. So there's a valid reason to be outraged. I'm of the opinion that Solid heads, however, at the end of the day, I'm of the opinion that solid heads will prevail. Those who are sincere with their efforts to bring about true change will work to further validate the social justice movements and to keep the unruly destructive actors within their midst in check. I don't think they're going to, you know, these people who are spearheading these social justice movements, they're going to let these extremist elements or these extremist factions get control of their groups. They're going to take whatever actions are necessary, but everything has its limit, of course. And within these social justice movements, I know there are a lot of people with solid heads who are going to be like, let's go about this a different way. So again, I'm of that opinion. I don't know how everyone else feels about that, but I think it's important to know the dangers in taking a movement too far. We have to learn about that. You know, sometimes movements can go a bit too far. The Cultural Revolution went too far. It became overly chaotic. It lost sight of any validity in its intention or its purpose. It's okay to demand accountability of those who commit injustices or commit offenses here in the United States. But as with everything, there should be a limit to the humiliation. We don't want to go as far as the Red Guards did in China. We shouldn't forget the humanity of the person in question. We shouldn't forget that they can grow and that they can change their opinion. They can even learn how they were wrong. When we lose sight of that, we are capable of the exact same barbarity, the exact same barbaric acts that were committed by the Red Guards in the Cultural Revolution. It can easily go down that slippery slope of beating someone, of humiliating someone, and of killing someone, simply because we disagree with them. And that's very, very dangerous. That's something that we should ultimately avoid. That's what I got from studying all of this. The Cultural Revolution is very much a warning from history to the movements going on now that we should take heed, that we should very much take heed. We don't want it to turn into that. But to wrap this up, 
I would just advise that we learn from the Cultural Revolution. That we learn from its war. And that we not go down the same destructive path. But instead we should work honestly and sincerely to enact the true change that we do need. But that we should look back at that instance in China as what not to do. We shouldn't shun or exile the older generation simply because they might have some outmoded beliefs. I think it's important to include them in there because the last thing you want to do is denounce someone who may be your family. You know, you might say, oh, well, you know, yeah, they have outmoded beliefs. Why should I keep supporting them? Again, just look at the Cultural Revolution. A lot of people were forced to do that, and later on in life, they regretted it. They deeply regretted it. So we need to sort of look at this instance carefully. We need to look at this lesson from history carefully. We need to be wary of not making the cycle repeat again. We need to be wary to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. We need to be wary that, or aware that we learn from the Cultural Revolution and we take careful steps moving forward. So with that being said, those words of wisdom from yours truly, just going to say thanks for listening, and I hope that you all are safe and that you take care of yourselves, and I will see you next week. Or not next week. I'll be promoting next week the episode as well as, you know, maybe doing a filler episode as well. Another little quick Q&A. It was 9-11. I'm recording this on September 11th, so it's the 19th anniversary of what took place. So I might do a little filler week episode with regards to that. But other than that, I hope everyone stays safe and I hope everyone stays productive. Last words of wisdom. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Stay safe, everyone.